0: Get a running start in verse 1. It says that Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him, into the south, that is the Negev, or the southern portion of the land of Canaan, which would later become Israel. And Abram was very rich in cattle, in silver, and in gold. And he went on his journeys from the south, even to Bethel. Unto the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. Unto the place of the altar, which he had made there at the first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. I remember growing up and going uh, to school that I was always taught grammatically that a sentence should never begin with the word and. That that was grammatically uh, incorrect, something that shouldn't happen. But what we find in our study here tonight in chapter 13, that that's exactly how this sentence and this chapter begins. It begins with the word and. In fact, of the 18 verses that make up chapter 13, you'll find that 10 of them begin with the word and. God doesn't pay attention to that grammatical rule that sentences shouldn't begin that way. If you were to read through the next two chapters, chapters 13 and 14, you would actually find that that word, the word and, is used 98 times in those two chapters. And that's not a lot of verses, 18 verses in chapter Uh, 14, I mean, 13, and then, uh, you know, 24, I think, in chapter 14. And so, 98 times the word and is used, and and most of the verses, actually, in those two chapters begin with the word and. And you say, well, what is the significance of the word and? Well, the word and very simply implies that there's more to the story. If you use the word and, what you're saying is that there are events and things that happened on the other side of what happened before the and. And that brings me great hope in the context of what's going on in Abram's life here at this time, is that there's an and and not an end. Because what we saw in the last chapter is that Abram has had a great failure, He took his life into his own hands when a famine came into the place that God told him to be. And rather than trusting in God and waiting for God to show himself and to provide for Abram in the place where God told him to be, Abram left Canaan and he went down into Egypt, taking his wife and his great company, probably over a thousand people with him. And there he made a fool of himself He caused a huge rift in his marriage and caused great embarrassment to his people. He suffered great reproach and great loss, shame, and he was humbled in the eyes of his own men and, of course, in the eyes of the men of Egypt. And and you might be thinking that Abraham is thinking, well, this is the end, I blew it, I screwed up, and now God is done with me. He's going to have to find someone else to fulfill his promise and his purpose, because I have just really, really made a mess of my life. But with God, failures are not an end. Failures are just the event that comes before the end. God isn't done with Abram here, who has failed, and God isn't done with us when we fail either. Now, Yes, Abram failed, yes, Abram made a huge mess of things, but there's also an abundance of fruit that's going to now be manifested in Abram's life because of the failure that he has experienced, because of what he did down in Egypt. He's going to learn from his failures, and there's a whole bunch of heart work that is going to be done that is done in Abram because of it, and we'll see the fruit of that in tonight's study as we continue on in Abram's life. It's an amazing thing what our trials can do when we allow God to lift us up from them and then teach us and lead us on forward. In the book of Romans in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul is giving kind of a description of the Christian life. That's what Romans is. It's just a, a, an explanation, basically, of what it means to be a Christian. And in chapter five, he is highlighting and kind of delineating the advantages, the blessings that we have because we know the Lord. And he says, We have peace with God. We have access to God. And he's kind of listing these amazing things. And then in chapter 5, verse 3, he says something that kind of makes you curious a little. It doesn't make sense, it doesn't go with the flow. He says that we, and this is a benefit, he says that we also glory in tribulations. Now I read that and I go, I like the peace with God, I like access to God. I like the forgiveness of my sins, but I don't like tribulation. I don't like trials. What do you mean I glory or rejoice in tribulation or trials? He gives the reason right after. He says, because tribulation worketh patience. And then he goes on, A patience, experience, experience, hope. Hope makes not ashamed. It ultimately ends up with the love of God being shed abroad in my heart. But the last time I read those words, I saw It says that tribulation works, and I highlighted those words, and I thought, you know what, that's true. Tribulation works. The reason why we can glory in our trials and even in our failures in those trials is because tribulation works. It does something in us that needs to be done. It adds something to us for our future to help us in ways that God knows we're going to need it in the future. And that's exactly what happens with Abram. Yes, he blew it and made a fool of himself, and he was greatly humbled. But the lessons he learned changed him on the inside, and now we get to see this new man that comes out on the other side of it. Now, I wish it was always the case that every Christian that goes through a trial comes out of it and has the glory of its work having been done in their heart. But it's not always the case. Some Christians go through trials and they just endure it. They suffer through it, but they don't pick up the lesson or allow the change to happen in them, the things that God can do now because of it. They endure, but they don't transform. Why did Abraham succeed on the other side of his trial? The answer is in these first four verses. There's three things here that we're told that Abram did after he failed and after the trial was over. It says, first of all, that he went up in verse one out of Egypt, meaning that he knew he wasn't in the place that he was supposed to be. And so he didn't stay there But he left that place. He went up out of Egypt, number one. Number two, it says he went on in verse three. It says he went on in his journeys. That is, because he failed, he didn't say, well, that's it, I'm done. Well, now I'll just be a Christian and go to church, but I'm never going to serve the Lord again. I'm never going to look for his purpose in my life. Yeah, I'll go to heaven, but I've blown it on earth and I'm not doing that again. No, no, he went on. He said, I'm not done. God's not finished with me, even though I've failed. And then number three, we see it in verse four. He went back. That is, he went back to the place of the altar. He went back to Bethel. Bethel means house of God. He went back to the house of God. I left the place I was supposed to be. I blew it. And so I'm not going to stay there, I'm not going to stay down, but I'm going to go back to the place where I know I'm supposed to be, because I have hope that there, God is going to continue to work in my life and to use my life. Jesus said, if you've fallen, that you should repent, that you should return, and you should repeat the works that you did at the beginning. And that's what Abraham does. And so the reason why the trial was a blessing to Abraham, even though he failed, is because on the other side of it, he went up, he went on, and he went back. Maybe you're here tonight, and you, at some point in your Christian experience, you failed, you did something that you totally screwed up, you embarrassed yourself, your family, maybe your church, God's not done with you. Get up, move on, and go back. And tribulation will work in you the same way that it did in Abram. And you'll experience his riches. It's the way it should be. But not every Christian does that. Now, as we move on into verse 5, we're going to be introduced to another character who's already a part of the story, but he comes to the forefront now. And his presence in this story is going to serve for us as a contrast a comparison with Abram. And so we look in verse 5. It says that Lot also, which went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. And so we're reintroduced to this man, Lot. He was first mentioned to us back in chapter 11, verses 27 and 28, where we learn that he is Abram's nephew. He's the son of Abram's brother who died young, and thus Abram more or less adopted Lot and raised him as his son. And so he's Abram's nephew who was raised and supported by him. We're told in the New Testament concerning this man, Lot, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, that Lot was a righteous man, that when God destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, he pulled Lot out, and it calls him righteous Lot, or just Lot. He was vexed with the lifestyle and the things that were going on in Sodom, but Lot himself was saved. And so he was raised by Abraham, and when he came out of Babylon with Abraham, he made a, 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 a conversion in his heart, and he did belong to the Lord. And so his leaving of Babylon was also a conversion unto the Lord he's a righteous man and it's important that we understand that concerning this man as we see him in the story now concerning Abram's relationship with Lot we understand that Abraham was very obligated to him he felt a a closeness with him he was an attachment to Abram's deceased brother and he had a deep love and concern for Lot he treated him like his son and he took care of him while he was there Lot's presence, however, is going to become a problem for Abram, as we'll see in our story as it unfolds. And the reason why Lot was a problem for Abram was twofold. First of all, because God had told Abram at the beginning that he was to separate from his kindred, meaning that Lot wasn't really supposed to be with Abram. He was supposed to separate from them. And so Abram, in a sense, is outside the perfect will of God by having Lot with him. Now, it becomes real gray, doesn't it? Because he felt that familial responsibility, and by helping him and raising him, he led him to Christ, which was good. And so God didn't judge Abram for having Lot, but it's going to be a problem that God's going to have to deal with. The other reason why Lot is a problem for Abram is because though he's a Christian or a saved man... He's a different kind of Christian or a different kind of man than Abraham was. Abram wanted heaven and he was willing to forsake earth to get it. Lot wanted heaven, but he wasn't willing to forsake earth in order to get it. And so you can see that there's a total different value system that exists between these two men and it's going to manifest itself in problems. We see concerning Lot right here, it tells us in verse 5 that like Abram, Lot also had flocks and herds and tents, which means that Lot was a wealthy man and that he had possessions like Abram. He was also well-respected and well-esteemed amongst those that were traveling with them. If you were one of the servants, one of the herdsmen or just one of the armed trained servants that we'll meet later, and you were to assess the power structure of Abram's company, you would see Abram and Lot at the very top, and you would think of them probably in very similar terms. Everyone knew that Abram was the leader, but Lot was most definitely second in command and kind of being groomed to take over or be something on his own. He had his own possessions of flocks and herds and tents. But there's an interesting omission when it tells us about what Lot possessed, Every time we read about Abraham, Abraham was rich in gold, silver, flocks, and herds. But Abraham was a man who everywhere he went, he built an altar. The center of Abram's life was his relationship and his dedication to God. Not so with Lot. With Lot, we see flocks and herds and tents. We see possessions. But there's no devotion. There's no time we ever see in Lot's life where he gets alone with God and consecrates himself, or considers all that God did for him in bringing out of the vanity of what Babylon was, or thanks God for the provision and the opportunity that he's had to be where he is and to have what he has, or to dedicate his life to God and say, God, I'm yours for better or for worse. Lot never does that. He enjoys the benefits and blessings of being with Abraham and following God, But he's a man whose heart is not completely dedicated or consecrated unto God. And that's the kind of man that Lot is. Now, the same thing exists amongst God's people even today. There are Abrahams in the church of Jesus Christ. People that love God, that are dedicated, consecrated to him. That everything they are and everything they have is an outflow of that relationship between heaven and earth. Between their heart and his, spirit to spirit. But there are other Christians that are more like Lot. They use God. They know him at a distance. They're saved. Their names are written in heaven. But the relationship is weak. The consecration isn't really there. God is my helper, but he's not my Lord and my all. He's my good luck charm from a distance, but I don't really know him all that well. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 13 that there were four soils. And that the same seed fell on four different types of ground. Some by the wayside, some in stony places, some among thorns, and some on good fertile soil. And he said that those four different grounds are like human hearts. Some, the seed of the word of God hits it, the birds come and steal it, and it does nothing to them. They hear the word, it bounces off, it's dead. Others, they're stony in their hearts, and so they hear the word... They receive Christ and the gospel, but because they have no depth, when trials come, the roots try to go deep, but they're impeded by rocks, there's competing affections, and so the sun scorches it, and it dies, and they fall away. The third, among thorns, the roots go deep, the soil is good. But the cares of this life and the desire for riches and the lusts for other things choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And then, of course, the fourth, good ground, they bear fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. And so Lot is a picture of the Christian who maybe he has good ground, but he's so consumed with the cares of this life, the desire for riches and the lusts for other things that the word becomes choked the relationship with God becomes secondary and the man becomes absolutely nothing. And that's what we have in this man Lot. He's a man who's choked out by the world and a desire for the world. So a great contrast is created here between the man Abram and the man Lot. The devoted versus the distracted. Well, pretty soon conflict arises. Notice in verse six. It says that the land was not able to bear them that they might dwell together for their substance was great so that they could not dwell together. And there was a strife between the herdmen of Abram's cattle and the herdmen of Lot's cattle and the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelled then in the land. It was simply a striving or a competition for resources. Abram had many flocks and herds. Lot had many flocks and herds. And the Canaanite and the Perizzite were still on the land, and they also needed resources for their flocks and herds. And the land was so burdened by the abundance of livestock that it was becoming denuded, and the flocks and herds of all three parties were beginning to suffer and die because there weren't enough resources to feed them evenly, and it caused tension and strife between the herdsmen of Abram and Lot. And so this competition, this strife rises up and it causes this contention. Well, Abram responds to it in verse eight. It says that Abram said unto Lot, let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee and between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we be brethren. Is not the whole land before thee? Separate yourself, I pray thee, from me, If you will take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you depart to the right hand, then I will go to the left. We begin to see now the treasure that's being forged in the heart of this man Abram in the way that he now deals with his nephew Lot in the situation that's arisen because of this conflict and because of this uh, abundance of resources that they have. We see in these two verses, the wisdom of a growing Abraham. And we see that wisdom manifested in four things, four things. You can write them down if you want to, that Abram does here that are a sign of great wisdom. I want wisdom. Do you want wisdom? (laughs) Abraham, a great example here. First of all, is that he sees the vulnerability of the situation. He has insight to see the future, to see down the road of what's going to happen if things continue as they are. And he realizes that there's a vulnerability. First of all, the Canaanite and the Parasite are watching the way that we're dealing with one another. And if this strife, if this division gets deeper and continues to grow, then it's only a matter of time before they capitalize on this vulnerability. And cause us great harm. And Abram knew that that's not going to be good for him or for Lot. And so something needs to be done because of this potential intrusion of the enemy. The other thing that Abram sees in this is the potential for disunity. He says there should not be strife between us because we're brethren. He sees that there's the potential to rift the relationship between Abram and Lot them being both Christians, so to speak, people of God, that there needs to be unity between them. And in order for unity to be maintained, there has to be something addressed. There has to be a separation. And so Abram sees the vulnerability and he's proactive in dealing with it so that it doesn't come to the point where there's greater harm either from the enemy or in division of relationship as there shouldn't be. The second thing that Abraham does here that is extremely wise, is that he himself bears his share of the blame and he puts it on himself. Notice in verse eight, he says, let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my herdmen and thy herdmen. Notice that he puts himself first when he's highlighting the problem back to Lot. He doesn't say, "Lot, this is because your guys are so greedy and so boisterous, they're hugging up all the resources, and besides, you should have more respect for me. I'm the one that got you on your feet. He doesn't do that. He realizes that he's part of the problem, and he allows himself and his share in the burden of things to be the epicenter or the focus of the discussion when it goes forth. One of the things that I've realized in my life the hard way, in most lessons I learn, I learn the hard way, is that whenever there's a contention or a strife or a problem between me and someone else, or make it generic, just between two people in general, they are almost always equally at fault from different perspectives. Of course, from my perspective, I'm only a little at fault, you know, and they bear most of it. But from their perspective, they're only a little at fault, and I bear most of it. But in most conflicts, it's probably somewhere around 50-50 in the whole thing. And if we can learn in addressing things for the sake of unity and protection, to bear our share of things, though it may be humbling, it always creates a better outcome on the other side. A great piece of advice that was given to me many years ago that I've never forgotten that it has served me well, is that whenever somebody comes to you and gives you some form of criticism, Any criticism about anything, no matter what, no matter how off base it is, no matter how wrong you feel like they are, somewhere in it, there's an element of truth. Find it and learn from it. And you know what I've discovered ever since hearing that is that that's true, is that everything that's ever been told to me by way of critique or by way of slander, even there's something in it that's true. And if I'm humble enough to allow God to reveal it to me, he can then use it for his advantage in changing me in some way. So Abraham, in wisdom, takes the blame in this thing. He says, listen, this is me. This is my herdsman as much as it is yours. And he lowers the guard for Lot. The third thing that Abraham does that's extremely wise is that he relinquishes his right of first choice. Now, Abram, being the older man and being the greater man and the leader of this entire thing, he would have the right to say, Lot, we need to separate, and this is where I'm going to go, and you can go anywhere else you want, but this is my choice on things. And Abraham could have done that, but he doesn't do it. And it's an exercise of great wisdom. In Psalm chapter 15, and you can write that down and read it later, the psalmist in that psalm gives 11 things that God looks for when he's looking for someone to bless. Now, that should pique your interest, right? And number nine on the list of things in Psalm 15 that God is looking for in someone he wants to bless is someone who swears to their own hurt and doesn't change. In other words, they make a decision inside themselves, a resolution That if there's a conflict, if there's a problem, I'm the one that's gonna bear the blame and the fault and I'll let myself be ripped off in it. And that's my stance. I'm not gonna change from it no matter what. And God says that's commendable and that's wise. That's exactly what Abram does here. Now you say, why does Abram do that? Why does Abram give up his right of first choice in this whole thing? Two reasons. First of all, because if Lot sometime in the future fails, and he's going to, he can't come back to Abram and say, well, the reason I failed, uncle, is because you took the choice of the land and you gave me the leftovers. And thus my flocks were starved out and now I'm impoverished. He can never say that because he's the one that made the choice. And so it's wise of Abraham. The other reason why Abram is wise in giving Lot this right is because Abram is trusting and practicing the promise of God. He's applying the lesson he learned from his failure in the last chapter. The reason he went to Egypt is because he didn't trust God's provision. He has now learned that God is going to provide. And so though the land of Canaan is distressed and denuded, the nutrients have been taken away, I can trust that God is going to supply for me here, even if Lot takes the better grazing lands for him and for his flock. And so he relinquishes his right of first choice. And so Abram's wisdom manifested. And then, of course, number four is that he was practicing the promise, applying what he learned through the trial that he went to. I can afford to let go of this because God has promised. Now, the source of Abraham's wisdom was his relationship with the Father. The altar of worship is the source of wisdom. In Colossians chapter 2 verse 3, the Bible tells us that in Jesus Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. James chapter 1 verse 5 tells us that God gives wisdom liberally to those that ask. So if Christ is the secret of wisdom and knowledge and God gives wisdom to those that ask, then it stands to reason that those that lay down closest to the fountain are going to be saturated the most with the substance that that fountain springs forth. Wisdom comes from God. And we see that Abraham, a man who fellowshiped with God, was rich in wisdom from God in the way that he handled life and the way he dealt with situations. Well, we contrast that now, the wisdom of Abram, with the foolishness of Lot. Notice Lot's part in this in verse 10. It says that Lot lifted up his eyes, and he beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere, before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you come to Zoar. Then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves the one from the other. So Abram gives Lot the choice, the option to choose where it is that he wants to go. And so Lot chooses. He looks around, he finds what he thinks the best grazing lands to be, and then he decides this is the way I'm going to go, Uncle Abraham. And in this response to Abram's words, Lot shows great foolishness. Foolishness, first of all, and that he despised parental authority. He shouldn't have taken first choice, even though it was offered to him. He should have said, no, Uncle Abraham, you're the older man. You're the one with more experience. Everything I have, I have because of you. You've raised me and I've went with you all the way from the very beginning You tell me where I should go or you choose. That would have been the respectable thing to do. But he doesn't do that. The Bible teaches us that God places much on order and submission. It's important to God in the realms of men that we understand where we fall and that we give honor to whom honor is due and custom to whom custom is due. We see that exemplified even in the life of the Savior, Jesus Christ. I mean, how can you outrank God? You can't, right? But the Bible tells us in Luke chapter 2, the only account we have of Jesus' early life, that when Mary and Joseph put Jesus to it for staying behind in Jerusalem, it says in Luke chapter 2, verse 51, it says that Jesus listened to their words and he was subject to them meaning that God submitted to earthly parents. Now, that sounds so ridiculous, you know, when we think about it. You know, like, he should have told them what to do. He was the son of God. But yet, no, as an example, he was submitting to what it was that his parents asked him to do. And what the Bible teaches us is that submission is the key to having authority in the kingdom of God. Can I tell you a secret? It applies across the board in life is that the fast track forward for any person in any position, in any situation, the fast track forward is to push ahead those that are above you. Thrust them upward. That's the fast track forward for you. Pastor Mike always says around here, he says, hey, listen, the way up is down. It's another way of saying the same thing. If you wanna go up, the way is down. Humble yourself, lift up others, And God will lift you up. You know what's amazing? Is that in Luke 2.52, right after it says that Jesus submitted himself to his parents, you know what it says after that? It says that he grew in favor with God and with men. And that's always the outcome. But Lot knew nothing of that. He was given an option, and so he capitalized on it. He had no respect for parental authority at all. The second thing that Lot did that was foolish is that Lot walked by sight. Notice that it says in verse 10, it says that Lot lifted up his eyes. Abraham was a man of faith. Lot was a man of sight. He lifted up his eyes and he assessed and chose based upon the things that he saw. The problem with Lot here isn't just that he lifted up his eyes. It's that he didn't lift them high enough. He lifted them only high enough to assess things from a worldly perspective. He should have lifted his eyes all the way up to his heavenly father. And there prayed and said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Father, what would be the best option for me in my life right now? He should have said, Abram, let me pray about this and bring it to God and ask him what's best and what's his plan for my future and things. But that was not in lot to do. He was a man of the world, a man of the earth, and thus he made his decisions and his assessments based upon the things that he could see with his eyes. Notice what it says in verse 10. It says that the the plain of Jordan was well watered before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Watch this. Even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. Do you see that? Even like the garden of the Lord and like the land of Egypt. Now, what that's saying is that it was lush, it was fertile, it was rainforest-like, it was good ground, a good place to raise crops. But do you notice the contrast between those two things, the garden of the Lord and the land of Egypt? There cannot be two more contrasting things in the spiritual realm than the garden of the Lord and the place called Egypt. One is the picture of beauty, the picture of the will of God, the picture of God's glory and blessing and everything that's good and holy. The other is the picture of worldly failure, worldly resources, independence from God, doing things apart from God. I mean, they're on polar ends of the spectrum, and yet Lot looks at it, and now what he sees, he can't differentiate between the two. Listen, here's a secret. Is that when our eyes are only lifted as high as earth when we're making our decisions or evaluating things, we can get very confused about what good really is. I mean, this is insane here. This is kind of like a young man coming home to his mom and saying, Mom, I met a girl today. She's the most beautiful woman I've ever met. She's like she's like Abram Sarah. She's like Ruth. She's like Naomi. She's like Lady Gaga. (laughs) And you go, wait, what? The garden of the Lord, the land of Egypt, those two things don't belong in the same comparison. They might look alike outwardly, but they're polar opposites in terms of what they represent spiritually. And Lot is confused because he's only lifting up his eyes high enough to see the earth the eye listen the eye cannot discern the difference between what is good and what is not good in the spiritual realm we need something more and thankfully we have it we have access to god who sees all things clearly but man was a lot was a man of sight second corinthians chapter 4 verse 18 says that we look not at the things that are seen but at the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And thus our eyes must always be fixed if we're to see success on the things that are unseen. The third manifestation of Lot's folly is that his values laid in the material and not in the moral. He evaluated what he wanted and what was good for his life based upon how it would bless him materially rather than what it represented and was morally. Now, even in that day, Sodom had the same reputation that it has today. It tells us that the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners exceedingly before the Lord. We're going to see that in the next couple of verses as we read on. In the next chapter, we're going to see that the veil of Siddim, or the valley that laid outside of Sodom, Sodom, was filled with slime pits. Now, what's the valley? The valley is the low spot, right? And everything flows towards the low spot. And so everything that was coming out of Sodom would flow into the veil of Siddim. And it tells us that there laid slime pits. What was coming out of Sodom was wicked immorality and moral slime and moral filth. And yet, the life of the city, though it was morally rotten, it was hidden behind an attractive prosperity. And Lot was deceived by it because his values laid in the material and not in the moral. He thought, I can prosper in that city and not be polluted by the immorality of it. And he made a huge mistake because that turned out not to be the case. This happens all too frequently in Christendom in the modern day is that people make decisions for their family, where they're going to move, what they're going to do, based upon how it's going to benefit them materially or monetarily. We're moving to such and such a city. We're going to go to such and such a place. I'm going to take such and such a job. It'll really set us up for the future financially. It's a good decision for our portfolio. And yet no regard is given to the spiritual consequences of such decisions. It's made completely by the material. Is there a Bible teaching church in the city that you're looking to go into? Well, I don't know. Aren't there Bible teaching churches everywhere? We'll figure that out when we get there. Well, what else is coming out of that city? What's it known for? Is there a place where you can plug in and grow and be influenced and encouraged in the things of God? I don't know. People don't make decisions that way. Dollars and cents, man. We got to do what's right financially. Only to see that that decision, because it was made with an emphasis of the material without considering the moral or the spiritual, that the outcome for the family or the offspring or future generations is detrimentally affected by the decision. In all of this in law, there's no regard for the will of God, no regard for what's best for him and for his family spiritually. It's all about the money, and thus he makes his decision. The fourth characteristic of Lot's foolishness is told us in verse 11. It says that Lot chose him, all the plain of Jordan. Lot chose his destiny for himself. Lot chose. He didn't leave the decision up to God. He took things into his own hands and made a decision. It's been well said that God gives his best to those that leave the choice with him. What I've realized in my time in the Lord is that God knows me better than I know me. And God knows future circumstances better than I know future circumstances. And therefore, if God is for me and God is with me, then he is able to put me in the right place For the right reasons, at the right time, for safety, blessing, prosperity, and his purposes and goodwill for my life. Now, sometimes it's a struggle, isn't it, to let go of the decision-making process and to trust God to choose for us what our destiny is going to be. Well, what if I let God choose and he chooses something that I absolutely hate? Listen, God knows you better than you know you, and God knows the future that you don't know. The funny thing about me that I've learned and I'm learning is that I change quite frequently. And what that means is that the things that I greatly value today, I might not so much greatly value tomorrow or greatly value once I realize a little bit more about life or the thing that I'm greatly valuing. If you had asked me when I was 20 years old to write the perfect picture of my future, I could have painted a picture for you. But what I can tell you is that if God had fulfilled that picture and done it, I would be a very discontent man today. Because the things that I valued and hoped for when I was 20 are posh compared to what he's done for me now. And I choose what he's done rather than what I would have done for myself in that time. Recently, I was at a a gathering at someone's house and I was asked by uh, one of the guys in the church, he said, what are your goals for 2017 or 2018? And I, and I smiled a little bit and, you know, he caught me off guard because I I didn't have one, you know, and I thought, oh, well, you know, here I, I should, should I make something up, you know, so so I get a haircut or, you know, I don't know, new wardrobe, get a couple of shirts or something. I I don't know. And I started to think about that and I thought, well, is this, have I become complacent in that I don't have goals? And I said to the guy, I said, you know what, I, I honestly, I've kind of given up on goals and here's the reason. Because every time I've ever set a goal for myself in the Lord, things change so quickly that those goals just fade and change and they never materialize because he has a different plan than what I have. And so my answer to that question is this. What is my goal for 2018? My goal for 2018 is to be sensitive to his voice. I wrote it down because I knew I would forget uh, the three things in the moment. And sure enough, here's that moment and I can't remember what they are. But nevertheless, I'm sorry, to be submissive, first of all, to his will, to be sensitive to his voice, and to be responsive to his spirit's promptings. To be submissive to his will, sensitive to his voice, and then responsive to his promptings. That's my goal for 2018. And that's a good goal for every Christian to have every day. You can't go wrong. What is that? That's letting God choose. It's letting God choose where he wants to lead us, at what time, for what purpose. What scares me in this passage is that Lot was a Christian who wanted his own way, chose his own way, and got his own way. That's scary to think that that might happen, that God might let us have our way. Well, Lot was a foolish man. And so the conclusion of the matter in verse 12, it says that Abram dwelled in the land of Canaan, a distressed and denuded land, but in the will of God. And Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent toward Sodom. Meaning that every time Lot upended his tent, the next time he pitched it, he pitched it a little bit closer to the city of Sodom. Listen, where your eyes are pointed is where your feet are ultimately gonna go. And that's what happens to Lot. He beheld Sodom, He pitched his tent toward Sodom. And pretty soon we're going to see that Lot dwelt in Sodom. And ultimately, he's going to have a position in the government in Sodom. Lot's going in the wrong direction. But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. Well, what's the outcome for Abram in this? Verse 14, it says, And the Lord said unto Abram, after that Lot was separated from him, lift up now thine eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, to thee will I give it and to thy seed forever. There's two things that strike me here. First of all, that it wasn't until after Lot was separated from Abram that God now confirms and strengthens the promise that he had initially given to him. The timing of this tells me That Lot, in Abram's life, was an impeding force to what God ultimately wanted to do for the man. That until God got Lot out of Abram's life, the plan was on pause. And I find that to be true in my life and in the life of many Christians, even in the modern day. There are things that can be in our life that God wants out of our life. Long ago, he might have whispered, separate from this thing. Or maybe from this person or this situation or this group of friends. And we hear it and we go on and God is still with us. And so we're reluctant and we don't obey. We keep going in that thing. And God is still with us. He still loves us. But the plan of God and the ultimate purpose of God in our lives is on pause. Because he's asked us to do something. And it isn't until after that thing is separated that God then comes in and says, Now you lift up your eyes. Lot lifted up his own. Now I'm giving you the call to lift up your eyes. Lot needed to be separated from Abraham. The other thing that strikes me in this is that Abram gave up first rights to choose the best of the land for himself. And now God not only gives it back to him, but he gives him abundantly more. Instead of just choosing one segment of the land to dwell in, like Lot did, going to the east... God tells Abraham to look in all four directions, north, south, east, and west, and then he gives him the promise and he says, It's all yours. Listen, guys, anytime we give up something for God, what we get in return is of infinitely greater value than what we first initially gave up. It's a principle from Genesis to Revelation, from the beginning of time all the way to the end. You cannot outgive God. And a surrendered life is always going to be a blessed life. God said, Look now from the place where you are. And he commanded him, first of all, to look northward. To the north, Abram would see the land of Haran, where he had spent those years with his father, waiting for him to die. He would see the path that God led him on in his pilgrimage and in his journey. And no doubt to the north, he would see the faithfulness of God, that God had been with him throughout all of his wanderings, all of the time that led him to the place where he is right now. God was faithful. God brought him to that place. As he would look to the south, he would see the entering of the land of Egypt. And flooding into his mind would be the failure of his lack of trust in God and going down there and embarrassing himself before the failure. He would see his backslidings to the south. yet in his backslidings he would see the faithfulness of God and the blessing of God and how God preserved him and brought him back up out of Egypt to the place of the altar where he was at the first. God working in his life patiently showing favor to Abram. To the east Abram would see the land of Babylon, Ur of the Chaldees, the vanity of idolatry that he had been called out of and he would see the grace of god in saving him from that place and he'd remember what it was like to lay his head on his pillow and think what was i then and to the east he would look and he would see canaan he would see the promised land that would one day all be his he would look up and he would see mount carmel the place where elijah would one day call down fire from heaven upon the 450 prophets of baal He would see Shiloh, the place where the tabernacle would be erected, where Joshua would establish the worship of God in the center of the nation. He would see Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, where the law would be thundered back and forth and the covenant that God laid with his people. He would see the Sea of Galilee, where the Savior would one day walk and conduct his earthly ministry. He would look across and he would see Jerusalem, the city where God says that he would write his name. He would see Mount Moriah that would ultimately be the place where the temple would be built and where the Son of God, Jesus Christ, would be crucified. He would see the land that God promised to him, the calling, the destiny. Abraham was given all. Abraham was given God. His past, his path, his backslidings, his present, and his future. Abraham, lift up your eyes. I've given all of it to you. For the land which you see, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. Arise, walk through the land in the length of it, and in the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. Then Abram removed his tent, and he came and he dwelt in the plain of Mamre. So he moves from the southern town, And he moves further into the land, a sign of greater consecration, greater surrender. And he moved to the plain of Mamre, which means strength, which is in Hebron, which means communion. And there he built an altar unto the Lord. And so God brings Abram further in his consecration unto himself. And Abram, a man now of death. What we have in the study tonight as we close and the musicians can come is that we see, first of all, a man whose eyes are fastened upon eternity. A man who wants heaven, and a man who's willing to forsake all to have it. Willing to lay down his rights, his desires, his will, because he sees a greater prize in the thing that God has promised to him. And we see a man that in laying down all for God and to know God, He's a man who not only gets God, but he gets more and beyond what he could ever have dreamed for or asked. We see another man in the study. We see the man Lot who's saved. He wants heaven. He just doesn't want to give up earth. We see a man who at one point was in the ministry. He had flocks and herds and cattle, a symbol in the Old Testament of the flocks and herds of Christ in the New Testament, the sheep of his pasture. Lot, a man who was once in the ministry but couldn't let go of his thirst for wealth and his taste for Egypt and the city. And he's a man who ends up losing all. And to the end of his story, what we see of Lot is he ends up without possession, without a penny, living in a cave, drunken, having just impregnated his two daughters. His life is the picture of a mess. And the Bible tells us in Second Peter chapter two, verses six and seven that he was tormented and vexed. He was headed for heaven. We will see him there, the Bible declares. But yet he's the picture of a wasted life because it wasn't about God. It was about something else. And there's a challenge for us in this tonight. Who are we? Who are we growing more like? Are we becoming more like Abram, the man of faith? Is our life characterized by the tent and the altar and all the material things are immaterial? They really don't matter in the long run in the grand scheme of things. They're priceless in comparison with what we get in just having God. He's enough. When we sing those songs, Lord, you're more than enough. Take all I am, all I want. You're all I need. When we sing those things, is that real and is it becoming more real? Or is it just lip service? Is there an altar in our life, an altar of thanksgiving, an altar of appreciation, an altar of consecration and devotion? Or is it all about us and what God can do for us? I ask you tonight, honestly, are you vexed? If you were to describe your own life, you would describe it, well, I'm vexed, I'm tormented, I'm discontent, I'm pulled seven different ways, I'm conflicted. Is it possible that maybe there's a lot living inside of you? Or a lot that needs to change in your life? Come to Bethel. Come back to the place of consecration. Get up from the place where you are right now. Go on in your journey and continue with God. And go back to the place where he was everything. Where he was all. And the outcome of your life is that there will be an and and not an end. Lot's going to come to an end. And so will every Christian that can't lift their eyes above the plane of this life. But that's not the will of God for any one of us. Next week, we'll see what happens to Lot. And we'll see what happens to Abram. Father, we thank you tonight for this word. We thank you for your faithfulness, Lord, to speak it into our lives. And we thank you that the author of it is a father who so carefully loves and leads and that doesn't desire that any should perish, but that all should experience the abundance of life. Oh, Lord, I ask tonight that as your eyes run to and fro in this congregation, I ask, Lord, that there would be altars that are being built right now. I ask, Lord, that by your Spirit, you would draw many tonight to open up those closed-off areas of the heart, to let go of those things that are so tightly being held onto that ultimately will only be destruction in the end, and that you, God, would be the all-in-all, the thing that satisfies and fills the life. So tonight, Lord, move by the power of your Holy Spirit. Let the person of Jesus be fully realized and known in this place. Let the hope of our eternity burn upon the backs of our eyelids that we would see nothing but you. That we would desire nothing more than, nothing other than you. Lord, where tonight some of us outside of your will, through stubbornness or maybe just fear, tonight, Lord, that you would illuminate the path that we might take that one step like the prodigal son and find as we look the open arms of a gracious father with a tear in his eye saying, Welcome home, son, daughter. Oh Lord, do your work in our hearts that none of us would fail of the grace of God, that tribulation would work in us, Lord. We declare our need. We declare our love. We proclaim you as Lord. Jesus, be the king. Be the king. It's in your name that we ask. Amen. Let's stand together.